right, how is everyone doing? For those of you that are visiting, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the pastors here. For those of you worshiping with us from the East Worship, welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church. Today we get the blessing after two beautiful weeks of Missions Fest to go back to the Gospel of Matthew. How many of you guys were here present for the Missions Fest? Isn't the Lord amazing? Isn't it amazing to hear and see what the Lord is doing, not only in our area, but all throughout the world? Isn't isn't that amazing to see how there are people, partners in ministry, in which they're giving their lives completely for the cause of Christ? And he paints this picture that the body of Christ is not only uh, made up of those that are here doing what the Lord has called us to do here, but he is the same Lord that is using other people in other parts of the world. And this is part of the reason why, as a church, we celebrate Missions Fest. But I'm also excited because we are going, uh, going stepping into the last uh, section in our, in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we start the last uh, the beginning of the last two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. We're, gonna, we looked at the chap, we're looking at chapter 27, the first part, and we have only, I think including this one, four more sermons. Two years as walking together through the Gospel of Matthew. And I hope that what the Lord has been doing in your life is to paint a bigger, better, more beautiful picture of who Jesus is and why is it that he came to do what he did. Now, if you have been with us as we do this, walk through this journey, you, you probably remember that one of the things that I've been saying and some of the pastors we have been saying is that uh, in these last chapters, it seems like if Matthew is intentional about comparing and contrasting Jesus to everyone else. And it's almost like if he's painting the picture of how holy, beautiful, amazing, perfect, and loving Jesus is, and at the same time, showing how sinful ungodly, terrible people could be. On one end, we see the beauty and the holiness and the love of Jesus. And on the other end, we see the reality or the, the, the reality of sin in the heart of people. Now, we have been talking a lot about Judas. And it's interesting because Judas is not one of those guys that you're supposed to brag about. But today, interesting enough, as we look at Judas, uh, we, we're going to learn something that I think that for Christians should always be extremely important, and is the concept of repentance. Now, how many of you guys are familiar with that text? Please raise your hand here and in the east. All right. I want to show you that there's something here that most likely you missed. That at the end of the day, we see how awful this event is and what Judas is going through. But we miss that the one thing that he needed to change his life completely, one simple little thing, and is the word repentance. So I'm actually only going to use a few of the verses that we read today. I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk to you about what repentance is not. Second point is going to be what repentance is. And third is going to be what repentance looks like. What is not what it is and what it looks like. So let's go with point number one. Right at the beginning of the text, we see that all the, the chief priests and the elders had already made plans to execute Jesus. And to do that, to accomplish that, they take him to Pilate, the governor. And while all of this stuff is happening, something is happening in Judah's heart. So look with me, verse 3. 
It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, um, so, uh, he, uh, he, he was seized by remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, pause there for a second. So something happens. He realized that uh, what he had done was wrong. He, he sees that Jesus is being condemned. And out of a sudden, somehow, something hits him hard. Something system, the text says. And he feels remorse. Now, I want you to pay attention that the first thing he does is he goes and tries to return the money. And not only he tries to return the money, but look at what happened in verse 4. He goes to the religious leaders and he says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He's saying, I messed up. What's happening here was not supposed to happen. And then these people, like good religious people, says, what is that to us? That's your problem. Now, this is where we need to dig a little bit more into the text. Obviously, the word remorse, he's talking about this feeling of guilt. It's interesting, though, that the word remorse in the original is made up of two different words. The first part of the word means before or after, after, right? And the second part of the word in the original means to rethink or to change your mind or now wanting to change directions. So he sees what's happening with Jesus, and somehow, out of a sudden, he feels this thing that says, man, this is not what I was supposed to do. Rethinking, analyzing, maybe wanting to change direction. So I actually think that the text tells you that Judas felt really, really, really bad for what he did. How about if I tell you that that, that looks like what people feel and think about repentance. It, it, it looks very close to what looks like repentance. What I want to do for the next few minutes is actually make a distinction based on what we see here between the difference of remorse or feeling bad for something and repentance. The difference between remorse or regret and repentance, because I think that it's two different things. And I think that the text shows us that there are two ways, there are two indicatives, there are two things that we should pay attention that tells you when, it's, when something looks like repentance but it's not repentance, it's only remorse. The first thing is when there's a tendency to reduce repentance do just to just the emotion of regret is when we reduce repentance to just the emotion of regret. Actually, many people think that if you feel really bad, that means that you are truly repent that you truly repented. Now, to make it clear, I do think that the Bible talks about us feeling bad for what we do. We should have a heartfelt conviction of sin. If you do something wrong and you don't feel bad, you are dead. There is something natural that when we do something wrong, we, we feel bad. But how about if I tell you that that should never be enough, especially in a culture in which sometimes... 
doing the wrong thing does not feel wrong. Actually, there's a song going around, I mean, years now. It says, how can this be so wrong if it feels so right? For the sake of transparency, have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had the thought that something, even though God says it's wrong, it feels right? Okay, for the sake of honesty, those of you here in the West and those of you sitting in the East, Raise your hand if you have ever had that thought. The rest of you guys are lying. <laughs> we just don't say it. But there are things that we clearly know are wrong. It just doesn't feel wrong. Actually, in a second, I'm going to make the argument that that's part of the reason why we struggle with our sin. Maybe to be able to identify or make the distinction between what remorse is and repentance is, you got to ask a question, a very profound question in my opinion. Maybe you need to ask the question, what do I feel bad about? If you answer that question, I think that you can make a distinction. Actually, let me make the argument like this. I think that it's possible to feel really bad. And that doesn't drive you to repentance. I actually think that it's possible to say something similar to what um, Judah said here. Did you notice? The guy said, I have sinned. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He saw what he did. How about if I tell you that that is not enough if you don't understand, you don't have the right understanding of what repentance is and repentance is not. And one of the ways you see it is, once again, what is it that I feel bad about? Because if you understand you know, why you sh uh, about why you should feel bad about something is not right, I guarantee you that even if you feel terrible, you will never repent. And one of the ways you see it is because after you feel really bad, you still don't change. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here, but it is possible, church, listen up. It is possible for you to feel really bad about something you have done. It is possible for you to feel really bad because of the consequences of the thing you have done. It is possible for you to see how much you have hurt other people and that hurts you. It is possible to feel bad because your decisions are bringing awful things to you. But if it stays just as this remorse or regret, you will never change, and therefore, that's not true repentance. I'm going to give you an example. By the way, uh, for those of you that have your kids uh, at the fall camp, uh, I got the blessing to be with them a couple of days. Um, actually, came back this morning. Um, I gave part of this sermon to them because I wanted to have, I wanted them to hear the same thing that you guys are hearing this morning. So I share this, this part of my testimony with this. Um, but I make sure that they understood that what I'm telling you right now happened B.C., before Christ. Because the last thing I want is those kids to say, well, Pastor Hannibal did that, so it's okay. Right? So that, I want you to have that clear. What I'm about to share happened B.C., before Christ. And I want to make the point that in my personal life... I have been in places where I feel really bad for the things I've done. I see the sinful tendency in my heart. I see the consequences that that brings. I see what, what is going to happen to me. 
and I feel really, really bad. And the first time that I think I truly experienced this was when I was about 13. And at that time, I'm living in Ecuador, and I have a cousin, and we are like Batman and Robin. And I have, I'm, I'm the second one. He's Batman. And we had this tendency that whenever uh, we were hungry and we had no money, we will go to the mini mart, mini marts around the area, and take something without money. If you don't know what that means, that means stealing. So we were going to the store and then grab something, and we were really good at it. One day, though, I grabbed a chocolate this big, which then itself is such a dumb decision. I mean, if you're going to steal something, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should, but, if, you know, use something that you could, you know, hide. I grab a chocolate this big, and, right, and I put it down, uh, down my pants, and before we leave the place, the security guard stopped us. And they said, we saw you getting something. And my cousin, which is Batman, he says, we didn't do anything. You know, he's not afraid. He's Batman. Me, on the other hand, I'm, I'm super scared. And I'm like, no. And then my cousin says, you can do nothing to us. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. And then to try to intimidate us, they open this one of those huge coolers where you put the meat in. says, either you give me what you have or I'll put you in there. Guess what Batman did? You can't do that. That's illegal. You know what I did? <laughs> put me in there. That's crazy. They, we never returned what we stole. And they let us go. You know why that story was so important to me? Because I, I felt really bad for what I did. I saw the consequences of my sin. I saw what my sin could bring upon me. And yet I did not change. We did it again and again and again until I became a Christian. Now, I think that that happens, something similar, similar to that happens to a lot of us. When we reduce repentance to this remorse or regret, and that is not enough. Isn't that the reason why there has been many cases in which the person commits adultery, sees how much the spouse is suffering, sees everything that the person has lost, and when things go back to quote-unquote normal, when you think that you are secure, the tendency, if there's no true repentance, is for people to go back to do the same thing over and over and over again. Why? Because the tendency is to reduce the definition of repentance to feeling really, really bad. You know what's crazy? There are sins in which we don't feel bad. There are things we do in which the emotion is not even there. So I... I don't think that change is possible if you're banking on what you feel. I don't think that change is possible 
if you reduce the attitude of repentance to what you feel. And there's a second thing that we can see in the text that Judas did that actually paints the picture uh, for us to see the difference between remorse and repentance. And it's this. When we feel that we can do something to fix our remorse. So Judas feels really bad. He returns the money or tries to return the money. When the religious leaders don't take it in, look at what happens at the beginning of verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. You know what's a label we could use for that? Self-atonement. That's when we feel bad and we think that we can purchase or do something to fix our guilt. This is what Judas was doing. He thought that if he would take the money and return it, everything would be okay again. So his plan is not going according to plan because the religious leaders didn't want it. But I want you to see what was happening in Judah's heart because it's important for us to see. See, the reason why Judah sinned in the first place is because by nature he was self-centered, egocentric, and narcissistic. Isn't that the nature of sin? Sin always tells us you are the first. You deserve the best. Do what you want. Pursue your dreams. Nobody could tell you what is not good for you. It's narcissism at best. So if that's the problem, do you actually think that we could be the solution? Judas thought that if he would give the money back, he could fix the problem he had with his guilt. Now, I don't, I don't want you to confuse the biblical term of restitution with self-atonement. The Bible does call us to make a rest, restitution. If we have offended somebody, we have to go and try to fix things. If we have stolen something, you're supposed to try to return it. That's, that's a biblical concept, but please do not confuse restitution with self-atonement. Actually, let's make it a little bit more personal for those of you here and those of you in the East. Think about everything that you have said, everything that you have thought about, every wrong motivation you have had, and every single little thing that you have done wrong, and tell me how can you possibly ever exercise self-atonement? We will spend the rest of our lives and eternity trying to pay our debt. You know what's sad about Judas? Is that even though he returned the money and he thought that he had made it right, his guilt did not go away. And in the second part of verse 5, it says that he went away and hanged himself. So please don't ever confuse regret with repentance. Please don't ever reduce repentance to just the feeling of feeling bad. And please don't ever think that when you feel guilty, if you try to fix it, it's because you repented. That is not repentance. With that, then, we got to go to point number two. Because if that's not what it is, then what is it? 
And I need us to spend some more time thinking about regret. Because the Bible does talk about that, though. Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks a lot about that. What is, dif- what is different here is that he doesn't call it regret by itself. He calls it, he call, he calls it godly regret or godly sorrow, godly grief. And there's a huge difference between just remorse and godly grief. And the, def- the difference is in the word godly. And this is the thing that I want you to see clear. If you really want to repent, you cannot just focus on what you feel. You must focus on the one you sin against. See, the tendency when we struggle with repentance is because we are either focusing on us alone or the consequence of the sin but not in a sin itself and who that's, that sin is, that that sin is against the person of God. Every single sin we commit is against the person, the character, the holiness, the patience, the love, the goodness, and the faithfulness of God. First and foremost. Actually, let me make the argument, church, that if, if you don't learn to see your sin like that, you will never learn to hate your sin. Okay, moment of honesty number two. How many of you guys hate your sin? Raise your hand. How many of you guys love it? Raise your hand. You see, the reason why nobody here except two people and some of you guys in the East, raise your hand for the second one, is because it is hard to acknowledge that part of the reason why we sin is because we still love it. If you don't love it, why do you do it? You don't do the things that you don't love. Even if you're a believer, even if you surrender your life to Jesus, even if you have been walking with Jesus, the reality is that we hate our sin because we're supposed to and we ought to. But at the same time, we have this weird relationship in which we love it. That's why I pray that that Jesus return. I'm so tired of loving the things that destroy my heart, destroy my family, and destroy my relationship with Jesus. Part of the way we change is, is we understand that we have this dual relationship with our sin in which we hate it because it's awful. But at the same time, we still love it. Let me give you an illustration. King David. I mean, if you know that story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he committed adultery, I, I think that all of us would say, man, he messed up really bad. If you don't know the story, please read it. But I'm going to give it to you in, in 30 seconds. If there was someone that had multiple sins and a row within seconds, it'll be this guy. So sin number one, he's supposed to go to work. He's supposed to go to work, and he doesn't. He took a chill day, personal day, sick day. Sin number one. Sin number two, because he did that, now he's got a lot of time, 
and he's walking around, and he starts to desire a woman that is not his. See, number three, as a king, he has the responsibility to use his authority to protect, defend, and serve his people, because that's what a leader does. How does he use his authority? To demand that this lady will be brought to him. And the reason why we see that this is abusive power is because who would say no to the king? See, number four, he sleeps with the lady. And now the lady's pregnant. See, number five, he tries to bring the husband to, make, to trick them into believing that that was his kid. And when it happens, see, number six, he kills them. You know what's interesting about that story is that if I had David, which I'm going to ask him when I see him, did you hate your sin? And he's going to say yes. So why did you do it? Because I loved it. What is interesting about his con conversion story is that he does not repent first for the things that he has done. He doesn't even apologize, at least in the story that we see. He doesn't first apologize to the lady or makes it up for the family. You remember what was the first thing that came out of his mouth? Against you and you alone I have sinned. Because if he doesn't start with God, it's not repentance. If you don't understand that every sin we have committed is not against God first, is not real, genuine repentance, and most likely you will not change because it's only a regret. This is why Paul says that godly grief brings repentance. We repent not just because of the things we have done wrong. We repent not just because of the effect of our sin. We repent not just because of the consequences of our sin. We repent not only because of what, what sin can bring to us, but we repent because first and foremost, we sin against God, even if it feels right. Even if it feels right. So you want to learn how to hate your sin. Learn to see it vertically first, not just horizontally. Now, that solves the first misconception. It has to be more than regret. What about the second one? What about the self-atonement thing? See, how is it that you don't do what Judas did? And for this one, I'm going to spend just a, few, just a few minutes talking about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Because I, I think that there you get the picture. So here in Luke chapter 15, you got this young man that is so interesting. He's got a lot of similarities with Judas. If you remember that story, the young man tells the father, give me my inheritance. You know what that meant? That here you have a young man that has a relationship with his, his father. And the fact that he's asking for the inheritance, he's basically saying this. I wish you were dead because I need my money. You ever thought of that? He's saying to the father, man, you're still alive? I need my money. And he shows you that this young man wants what the father gives, not the father. He goes away. He wastes all this money. Isn't that what Judas did? 
He loved what Jesus gave, but not what, the, what Jesus, who Jesus was. Now, when this guy wastes all his money and now he's completely broken, he realized that he had it much better at home. So he has a plan. And the plan is to come back home. But it's interesting that in that process, he understands something that Judas should have, under, should have understood. It's the same thing that we're talking about here right now. You, do you remember? What was the prayer? That, how is it that he was going to apologize to the father? This is what he would say. Pay attention here. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Did you notice the order? The order matters. He understood that his offense was not just against the father, but against God. Everything is going smooth. Until he does something very similar to what Judas did. See, Judas tries to return the money to make things right. And this guy says to the father, make me like one of your slaves. Why would he do that? Because he thought that he could purchase his forgiveness. He was doing self-atonement. He thought that if he could pay the price, he could be forgiven. But the story has a beautiful turn. Because that was the plan. But as the kid is coming home, the father sees him from the distance and he runs to him. And he hugs him. And he puts a robe on him and put a ring on here saying, you're back into the family. What is interesting, though, is that a father in that context and in that time would never, ever, ever, ever run. Why? Were they lazy? No, because he was shameful. Actually, the explanation is super simple. Back in those days, in that context, you didn't have this outfit. You had a robe. Kind of a gown. If a man will run, everyone could see his shame. And yet you have a father who does not care about public shame. And he runs to his kid and he hugs them and receives them even before he repented. And does not allow for this kid to purchase his redemption. Why would Jesus tell that parable? So we understand that there's no way, not only that we cannot purchase our forgiveness, but that God chooses to forgive even before we repent. And I find this super significant that Jesus is saying that when he's about to go to the cross. Do you know why he says that before he goes to the cross? So they can see and we can see that what drives us to repentance is not just the feeling. And that what drives us to repentance could never be self-atonement. That what, what invites you to repentance is that Jesus died for us 
while we were still sinners. He chose to love you before you repented. He died for you before you repented. He took the shame before you repented. He did what he was supposed to do before we repented. He was the one running toward us before we repented. He did everything we didn't want to do before we repented. Why did he do that? So we don't have to do self-atonement. The atonement had already taken place. And when you see it and you embrace it, you are quick to repent. Because you never want to offend the one that did that for you. You know, I'm convinced that if Judas would have seen that, he would have repented. And Jesus would have taken him, you know, from a human perspective. He couldn't see the beauty of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the satisfaction of God, the love of God, the patience of God. That's why he thought that feeling bad was enough. That's why he thought that he could fix the problem instead of running to Jesus. Is that how you repent? See, I don't want us to finish the Gospel of Matthew without having an attitude of repentance. I don't want us to finish our journey through the Gospel of Matthew in which we don't become repenters by nature. So that leads me to point number three. What repentance looks like. And it seems appropriate that if we're spending all this time talking about repentance, what repentance is now, what repentance is, that we take the time as a congregation to repent. Amen? Now, this is the way we're going to do it. I'm going to lead you guys here in the West in, in, a, in a time of repentance, and I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle to lead those of you sitting in the East in a time of repentance. And we're going to take a few uh, minutes to do that. So let's get ready in the East to do this, please. And now for us, I, I want to invite you, if it's possible to you, for your body to reflect where your heart is. So if it's possible for you, I'm going to ask you to kneel in a second, if it's possible. And I'm going to walk you through 10 different prayers. These are, these are prayers that were written by Trevix, uh, Trevin Wax, which is, he wrote an article called Christians, We Are Repenters. And basically... I'm modifying some of the stuff that he says, and I'm going to walk you through this, all right? And the way we're going to do it is like this. I'm going to read the sentence, the prayer, and I'm going to give you about 10 seconds for you to stay there with the Lord and do what you have to do. Amen? All right, so if you can, please um, kneel. Heavenly Father, we are repenters. We repent of living for ourselves, and so we commit to trading our personal kingdom agendas for your agenda, the kingdom agenda of Jesus Christ.
we are repenters. We repent of making God out to be more like us. And so we ask you to change our hearts and make us more like you. We are repenters. We repent of our silly attempts to justify ourselves before you and make ourselves pleasing to you through our own efforts. And so we ask you, Lord, to save us and sustain us in your steadfast grace and help us to rest in Christ's work on our behalf. We are repenters. We repent of our hypocrisy and self-righteousness. So we ask you to deliver us from double-mindedness and to help us seek you, seek your righteous righteousness above all. We are repenters. We repent of valuing most what other people think what other people think. So we ask you to help us value most what you think. We are repenters. We repent of withholding areas of our life from your command. And we ask you, God, to invade and overcome every part of us. Our hopes, our desires, our dreams, our thoughts, our actions. And show us how to love you and love others from a whole heart. We are repenters. We repent of seeking a life of ease and comfort. And so we ask you for the courage to pick up our crosses and follow Christ no matter the cost. We are repenters. We repent of all the good things we have failed to do. So we ask you to open our eyes to the opportunities for us to shine your light in a dark world. We are repenters. We repent of serving ourselves and our own interest. And so we ask you, God, to empower us to serve others in the name of your Son. We are repenters. We repent of taking pride in our own repentance. And so we ask you to remind us that salvation is all of grace and to humble us before the cross.
Lord, we are grateful because repenting is a gift. It's a gift that comes from the Spirit of God. We repent, Lord, not because we have to, but because we want to. And because we want to, we feel that we have to. We repent, Lord, because every sin we have committed is against you. First and foremost. We repent, Lord, because without repenting, Lord, our relationship with you cannot grow. We repent, Lord, because without repenting, we cannot grow. We repent, Lord, because we need to hate our sin more. We repent, Lord, because we still love our sin. Please make us new. Remembering, Lord, that when you were here, what you said was that we ought to repent and believe. Therefore, today we believe. We believe that what Jesus Christ did at the cross is enough. We believe that Jesus paid the debt. We believe that we are made, made righteous. We believe that we have been justified and sanctified and adopted because of what he did. We believe, Lord, that you loved us and forgave us even before we repented. We believe. Please help us because we need to believe more. Believe more in you. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, I'm going to ask you to please stand and respond to the Lord in adoration.